0: Once again, good morning, Meadowland. My name is Steve. I'm the, the pastor here for those who don't know me, and it, it truly is an honor uh, to be before you this morning. Um, one last thought I did want to put out there on the uh, the backpacks. Like I said, they'll be here uh, for all the weeks leading up to the 7th. Um, you know, But for those that have little ones uh, and are able, I would encourage you to try to you know, really make them a part of this as well, to have them uh, maybe have a pack that they're going to help fill and find different ways to include the whole family in that. Also, like I said, if you are in need or know someone in need of a backpack or multiple backpacks, um, you know, I'd encourage you to, to direct them to the website. Uh, also, you can follow us on social media. We post some stuff in the weeks ahead uh, to make the information more and more accessible. And so, we'd appreciate your help in getting that word out. What was the last adventure that you had? Let's kind of take a moment to think. What was the last moment you'd say this was an adventure? I know that's a, a pretty Vague term. It can mean all kinds of different things. H- how did it come about? You know, what i because mean? sometimes an adventure can be a spur of the moment thing. You ever done that where you're on your way home, whether it's you know um, just from work or maybe it's from a massive road trip, and you're like, you know what? Let's find a new way home. And, and all of a sudden, you just realize, hey, we live north of here. Let's just drive north, pick a road, and go north, and, and we'll see where we end up. And that's how you ended up finding your favorite little hole in the wall that you go eat at every time you're in that town. You know, Sometimes there's spur spur the moment adventures. Other times, there's all kinds of planning, that preparation that goes into some adventures, right? Maybe you got a big vacation coming out, or if you just took one, it, there's all kinds of planning. I'm sure that went into where we're going to stop, where how we're going to stay when we get there, what are we going to do? You, know, you you plan that thing out. You can imagine how some would take more planning than others. And uh, you know, if you're going to take a trip to the moon, I mean, heck, that's definitely definitely an uh, adventure. And you have to have all this plan to go, to go into that, and you want some redundancies in case something happens. But, but some might say that life is the greatest adventure we can live. And I think that there's some truth in that. But as we have been learning from Solomon from the book of Ecclesiastes, I think Solomon would have a different take on it. I think he might say something like this. He said, life is the preparation for the greatest adventure in life. We're going to be unpacking a little bit what I mean by that. Uh, but if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to jump right into them, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. While you're doing that, um, I'm just going to uh, slow down a bit here and uh, we're going to jump in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Remember, Solomon's walking through, uh, in this point of chapter 7, a series of better than statements. We're going to come across a whole bunch of, this is better than that, and this is better than that. And pretty much what he's doing is he's answering his own question that he posed uh, that we find at the end of chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 12, where he says this, for who knows what is good for man in life? In the few days of his feudal life he spends like a shadow, that he spends like a shadow. Who can tell man what will happen after him under the sun? Basically saying, who knows what's good for man under the sun? In Chapter 7, he says, well, I do. Let me tell you about it. And so here's a man uh, who has experienced everything. He sought out to find the meaning of life, and he tried everything. And As we've talked about his story, we shared how he had every opportunity available to him That's possible. He was the king. He had all the wealth. He had all this wisdom. He was able to try every aspect of life. And here he is at the end of his days, like an old grandfather, sharing what he's learned. All right, sonny, sit on down. I got some words for you. And Okay, Grandpa's going to talk. We all stop and listen. And so Solomon is sharing these, hey, I'll tell you what's better for us. I'll tell you what works for man and for life under the sun. As they go through a series of these better than statements, And I think as we unpack these, we're going to really see how this life is a preparation for the greatest adventure that we've yet to take. So this question here is, what is good for man under the sun? But we also have to acknowledge that it has this view of eternity, as we've gone through six chapters so far of Ecclesiastes, we've seen that uh, multiple times he keeps bringing up this concept of eternity, having eternity on our hearts. And he also has this contrast of life under the sun. So life under the sun he's talking about uh, after we're born and to the point when we die, the life on this earth. But then there's, there's an eternal perspective as well. And so as we're asking what is good for man in this time under the sun, we're acknowledging that there's eternity to take into mind as well. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to get to the first sentence, and we're going to pause here. Uh, A good name is better than precious ointment. So we are not going to get to the first sentence. I lied to you there. Uh, A good name is better than precious ointment. Pretty much what Solomon's saying here is a good name is better than perfume. Some things get lost in translation here. It's actually a play on words, because if if you go back to the original Hebrew, we see that the word for name is Shem, and the word for ointment or perfume is Shemen. It adds E-N on the end. And so there's a play on words here, but basically he's saying a good name, having a character, is better than having a pleasing aroma or fragrance. One of these will last well beyond our days, and the other one will be gone before the day even passes. Solomon is also the primary author of of Proverbs, and uh, he goes a bit deeper in Proverbs 22, verse 1. He says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. If you ask one of those questions, would you rather, would you rather have a good name or would you rather have wealth coming out of your ears? Solomon's saying the right choice, the better choice is for a good name. It's more valuable than those riches. So what does your name stand for is a question we can ask ourselves. Well, what does it mean to be who you are? Um, was a man by the name of Alfred Nobel who had an opportunity to do something that, that Most of us probably won't. He got to read his own obituary. Uh, Because once that's printed, we're usually not in a place to be able to read our obituary. Uh, But what happened is uh, his brother Ludwig had died. And uh, he was more popular, uh, Alfred was. And so there's actually a a miscommunication at some point in the process. And the newspaper is put together and ran an obituary on Alfred. And so all of a sudden he's reading the newspaper and he finds out, I died. Okay, that's not the case. Let's see what they said. And one of the things that he was most known for at that point in time, he was the inventor of dynamite and other kinds of of munitions. And uh, he always kind of had the struggle, it seemed, as well, between what his inventions were used for. And even as uh, it became obvious that they're being used more and more for war and for battle and and to take life, I think he kind of struggled with some of that. Uh, Almost the point of coming, hey, if if I could develop something so intense, would would that bring an end to war? Um, But he saw in this obituary that he was seen as... A merchant of death was one of the phrases that was used. Another paraphrase of a statement said that they saw him as someone who would cr- be uh, creating the way to kill the most people as fast as possible. You can imagine all of a sudden, you know, reading this own obituary and saying, is this really what the world thinks of me? Is this what's attached to the name Alfred Nobel? And this and other struggles in his life were, were some of the significant things that led, led him to the final kind of change in his heart. Uh, when, he, when he actually did die, and then they read through his will, because of his inventions, because of uh, his success, he had built a, a mass amount of wealth. And the majority of that, he left to a series of prizes that he set up on, on a global scale. Uh, we know these as the Nobel Prizes. And I think there's roughly five of them. Part of the one you're most familiar with is the Nobel Peace Prize. And this was an effort to say, hey, you know, I want to be known for something more than dynamite more than uh creating things that take life i want to encourage peace i want to encourage uh unity and working together on on a global scale so here's someone who saw what the world thought of him what his name stood for he didn't like that so let me make some changes in my life and so what what do our names mean you know as an erickson I, i desire for my name to be one of character and I hope to pass it on to my kids as well. That when someone hears the name Ericsson, they think, "Okay, yeah, that, that, that's someone who we can believe, who we can trust, that has character." I hope uh, tied to the name Ericsson is understanding that that's someone who loves God and someone who loves others. That's someone with integrity who has a heart of service and things like that. I desire to be known for these, as opposed to as a guy who smelled nice. Now, don't get me wrong. If, especially if you sat next to me at any point. I, I hope to be known as a guy who smelled nice, but far greater than that is to have a good name. I was thinking about that as, as I was getting ready this morning. I was brushing my teeth and putting on the deodorant and just kind of all those different things and a little spritz of cologne. And I'm like, I thought to myself, maybe I shouldn't do all this this morning. Kind of those like real tangible object lessons, but I wasn't quite sure if I could get the you know enough stink on me to kind of permeate the whole room. And, and so I figured, you know what, we'll, we'll just verbalize it, and I think that'll be enough for this morning. But Solomon's saying that, that a good name is far greater than a, a sweet aroma. And you may say, okay, Steve, it, we're just talking about putting on perfume. Like, it, what, what's the big deal with that? Well, I think he's going deeper than that. Again, it was a play on words. What he's saying is, is there's all kinds of things that we do to try to make ourselves more attractive, right? All, all the f- things that we invest in to try to look better to others. But what good is it it, to, to look our absolute best to the world. If when our name is mentioned, people kind of, you know, you throw up a little bit in your mouth. You know, you don't, it's like, oh, hmm. I mean, what, what if that was the reaction that people had when they heard your name because of what you're known for? Alfred Nobel saw that and experienced that. And that spurred him on to change. And so Solomon is saying it's, it's what is on the inside that matters far greater than what is on the outside. You know, one way we can really emphasize this is look at someone 10, 20, 30, you know, a couple decades ahead of you and see what matters in their life. I almost guarantee you in most cases you're going to find someone who would say, yes, matters of of the heart, character, who you are, what your name stands for are of far greater worth than looking and smelling your best. Now again, especially gentlemen out there who are pursuing ladies in your life, there's still importance of looking and smelling your best, especially in those moments. Gentlemen who have found a lady in your life, there's still importance in looking and smelling your best. But these are better than statements. Even more important, if you think looking good is important, far greater than that is what's on the inside. The next bigger, better than statement um, might kind of make you wonder about Solomon. You know, we said he, he's probably like a grandfather figure at this point in his life. He's kind of sharing uh, the wisdom of all his experiences experiences and when you hear what he has to say you might think okay solomon i know part of your experiences were like these epic parties i mean they went on for weeks i mean is it possible even though god gave you all this wisdom you might have burned out a little bit you might have fried a little something up there because you're talking crazy talk but just even if you feel that when you hear this just stick with me i think as we unpack this we're truly going to see the wisdom of solomon and honestly isn't that the best kind of wisdom have you ever had a conversation with someone about wisdom and then they just say something obvious? Like, oh yeah, I, I got that, no big deal. But then you talk with someone who's just true, truly got this wisdom and they, they just give you one line and you're like, you just blew my mind. I, I'm still trying to unpack half of what you said. And, and those are the ones that they cause us to think and, and challenge us. And that's something what Solomon's going to give us here. So back to 7 verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. Real, real cheery grandpa here, isn't he? The day of death is better than the day of birth, Solomon's saying. Hey, have you ever had the opportunity to be, to be present at someone's birth? If you haven't, you know, it'd be kind of weird if, unless it's your own kid, but try to find a way to be present because it is an amazing, amazing experience. The marvel of, of what happens, of the culmination of what's happening there, the, uh, all, all the um, potential, all in that moment, all the excitement, all the wonder. The miracle of life and birth is just an amazing thing. I've had, a chance, I've had the, the privilege of being at the birth of all three of my children, and every time it gets me, it just gets me. I'm just floored with excitement anticipation and hope for their futures and joy and wonder. Have you ever been to a funeral and experienced that? Regardless of the, the, the circumstances around the funeral, they're always a lot more somber. It's a quiet occasion, typically. Um, it's a lot less colorful than you would think of at a, at a, at a birth. Everyone's kind of dressed in drab colors. The, the, the outside's reflecting some what's going on the inside. And so we, we think of these stark contrasts here. And Solomon is saying that it's better to die than it is to be born. Where, where is he going with this? Well, well, for one whose eternity is secure in God, I think we can grasp a little bit what he's talking about here. If we know that our eternity, that where we go after we die, is secure in God, then of course, yes, our day of death is better than our day of birth. Because the day of death marks the day that we enter into eternity with God. It marks that day that we enter into paradise with Jesus. It's the day that Jesus completes the work that he's begun in our lives from that day we trusted in him as our Lord and Savior It's the day that the pain, the struggle, and the strife of this broken world come to an end. See, I think we've all seen this a little bit. Even if you have no idea who Jesus is, and you just came here with a friend this morning, I think we've all seen a little bit of this. If you've been to a funeral or heard of someone who passed away, who their final days were in extreme pain, you get this. Have you heard the phrase or used the phrase yourself, well, they're in a better place? Because you see that they're free from the pain, they're free from the, the confines of, of this physical body that breaks down, that gets sick, that dies on us. You see that, you understand that. And so when our eternity is secure in Jesus, whether we are in that place of suffering and pain or not, this is a true statement that death is better than the day of birth. I had a conversation years ago with my best friend Joey. Uh, we are talking about our funerals. And it wasn't really a sad conversation. Somehow it just came up. And uh, we kind of made this commitment to the other. Say, hey, if I die before you, you die before me. Whoever's alive when the other one dies. I want you to make my funeral a celebration. I want you to make it a celebration. A celebration of, of the reality of, of where he or I, whoever it is, where we are. That we are in heaven. That we're in paradise. That we're free from any pain we may have been experiencing. Yes, there's still sadness. Yes, there's still the struggle of loss where that person who has passed is no longer physically with us in this moment. And it's appropriate to shed tears. It's appropriate to mourn. It's appropriate to walk through those emotions. But when someone's talking about better than, he's saying there's greater value in that day of death than there is in that day of birth. So the question worth asking this morning is Is my eternity secure? Is my eternity secure? For some of you here, you're like, yeah, it is. I, I, I know what you're talking about, Steve. We're talking about the gospel, the good news that, that in our sin and the, the ways that we've gone against God, big or small, doesn't matter. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all got sin in our lives. And, and, and you know, Jesus came as a sacrifice. You know, Scripture would teach that the payment for that sin is death, is the shedding of blood, a separation from God. That's why you see in the Old Testament, all these sacrifices, they were a temporary solution for a a permanent problem. And God saw that. He said, okay, let me give you a permanent solution for that problem so that it's no longer permanent. And so he sends Jesus as a a perfect sacrifice who lives a life free from sin. He was able to do that because he was not only fully man, but also fully God. And so here the Son of God comes and, and lives a perfect life. And when he dies on the cross, that death is a sacrifice, is a substitutionary atonement, something that will stand in our place when we trust in Jesus, when we say, Jesus, I believe that you are God, that you are my Lord, the leader of my life, and my, my Savior, the forgiver of my sins. And I believe that your death was sufficient for my sins, past, present, and future. When we take that step, we are perfected. We are righteous because of Jesus. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Yes, we still live in this world, and there's a perfecting process. It's it's something like he begins in that moment where we trust in him for salvation that will bring all the way to completion at our day of death. And so if we've already trusted in Jesus, I think we can understand this a little easier, that yeah, death is better than birth. For those who haven't taken that step, there might be some anxiety or fear. I, I, I don't know what happens when I die. I don't have the confidence in that. Either I'm, I'm new to this whole Jesus thing or I, I've never heard that before. Well, First of all, you're in a good place. This is a good place to ask those questions and, and walk that road together. And I would encourage you to do just that. But it's also something you don't need to wait on. If you want to say, Jesus, I, I trust in you for the forgiveness of my sins, that's something you can do in this moment even while I'm preaching. You don't need to wait for anyone to pray with you. You can do that on your own. And begin that relationship with Jesus and receive his substitutionary atonement where he stands in your place for your sin. And you are now seen as righteous and perfect before God. And when your time on this earth under the sun comes to an end, you can be assured that your eternity is with God. It simply takes a matter of confessing before the Lord, I'm a sinner in need of saving and trusting in him for forgiveness through the work of Jesus on the cross that begins a relationship with Jesus that lasts, that starts today and lasts for all of eternity. The other thing I would encourage you to do, if you're at a place where you want to take that step, not only to take that step, but then tell someone about it. Whoever brought you here this morning, tell them, come talk to me afterwards because there's all kinds of amazing things that happen in our lives in addition to being forgiven of our sins as we trust in Jesus. And so don't try and walk that alone. Uh, The Christian walk isn't a lone ranger walk, but it's one to be done in community, as a family together. It's one of the other joyous things that happen when we trust in Jesus as we enter into the family of God. We become sons and daughters of of God. So is your your eternity secure in Jesus? Because life under the sun is but a preparation for the adventure ahead that's in eternity. So Solomon kind of continues on some of these crazy statements here. Death is better than birth. This next one, again, you're going to think he's going senile. If you got your Bibles, Ecclesiastes 7, 2 through 4. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So again, Solomon is just, these crazy statements, and he kind of recaps here, something he's been hitting on throughout his book, is that we all have the same end, right? We're all going to end up at a point of death. And this means that our days are numbered under the sun. And he lays out this, a funeral is better than a party. So let's think about those two circumstances. How has the greatest party you've ever been to changed your life? Think about it. But let's, let's be real here. You probably had a blast. If it truly is classified as the greatest party of your life, um, there's probably a a story behind that. There might even be some scars behind that, uh, physical or emotional, but ones that that lead to this amazing story of, hey, this this is why this is the greatest party I've ever had in my life. Maybe even some new relationships. I'm not saying that all parties are bad. I don't think Solomon's even saying that. There are good things that could have uh, come from that. There's a reason that they're fun and enjoyable. It's also... Possible that in some of the parties of our lives that we've ended up doing something that we regret that not only hurt ourselves, maybe even hurt someone else. And sometimes those are short-term pains that we can heal from. Other times they have long-term repercussions. Let's ask the same questions for funerals. How many funerals have changed your life? Well, the obvious point, first of all, is what your relationship is to the person of the funeral that you're at. Sometimes we just go in solidarity, right? Your co-workers, so-and-so passed away, and and out of your love for your co-worker or your neighbor, you you go to that funeral. You you never met the person who were laying to rest, but out of respect and love for for their family, you want to show we're with you in this. So how drastically does that change your life? It's probably not going to change your day-to-day all that much. But imagine it's a loved one, uh, it's a family member. It's someone close to you, someone who's raised you, someone who's been with you through thick and thin. Yes, that's going to dramatically change your life. There's pain, there's sorrow that comes with saying goodbye to them. But also, it leads us to question our own morality very often. If you've ever been to a, a funeral before, whether it's open casket, closed casket, or they've already been cremated and there's an urn up there, regardless, there's always a very clear presence that there's, there's a life that we're celebrating. That's come to an end. I, I've never been to a, a funeral before where I haven't brought, come to a place in my own heart, in my own life, where I've had a question of my own morality. Where we, we kind of turn introspective. We say, okay, yes, this, this is, a, is, a, is a harsh reminder that my days are numbered. How am I living out my days? You know, we may start to feel like Solomon's being you know, anti-joy here, anti-pleasure. He, he's not. Throughout his book, he's already said many times that that one of the things we can do to find meaning in this life is eat, drink, and and, and enjoy what the Lord has provided for us under the sun. But he's also, in addition to being kind of pro-joy, he's pro-growth. One of the ways that we say that here at Meadowland is that growing things change. And so when he says that that a funeral is better than a party, he's not saying that parties are bad. He's saying that, that there's greater value to be had when we go to a funeral. He kind of unpacks it here in verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. Some might be saying, Steve, hang on a second here, I'm a firm believer that laughter has the power to heal some emotional wounds, and, and I, I, I agree with you to a point. But There's different kinds of laughter. Uh, I remember at my grandfather's funeral where um, there, there were seven kids, and so I have a handful of aunts and uncles, and I was standing around with a few of my uncles, and you know, I, I was a pastor at this time, and so, of course, my one uncle has to pull out his, his one Bible joke I won't share because it's not appropriate, um, but he's like, hey, you'll get a kick out of this, and he, and he shares the Bible joke, and I'm like, all right, well, thanks, uncle, and, um, but there's this, this sense of, you know, there's that laughter in the midst of sorrow where are just trying to kind of um, find out how do I, how do I handle, what the, how do I deal with the reality of what's before me? But then there's the laughter of just hilarity and, 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 and joy where, where there's not no sorrow around that. I think that's the laughter you're saying of that, that sorrow is better than that. Because truly, I think all the laughter does is, is a temporary fix, right? It, it gives us a moment to breathe. So if you're at a funeral and someone tells a joke, you, know, you go from a place of sorrow, hey, that actually was kind of funny. Or you, you tell a funny story about the person who passed, and okay, I can, I can breathe for a minute before the, you know, your mind of the pain again but I don't think it truly heals wounds. And that's where sorrow steps in because sorrow helps to identify the wounds that are causing the pain. In times of stress and challenge, sorrow, frustration, this is when our weakness will show. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, Are you familiar with those plastic chairs that you see out in backyards or or those, those cardboard card tables where the four legs fold out? I'm sure every one of us has a story of some Christmas or Thanksgiving or family gathering where so-and-so had to get something up on, the, on a high shelf or from a ledge, and what do they do? They pull out one of these plastic chairs, they put it down, they take a card table, get the legs out, they put it up, and they, they, they kind of put a, a knee on it or you know, kind of sit on it. This will hold me. They kind of do the, the little mini test, right? And then where, where do they go from there? I mean, they just commit and they go all out. They jump up on that chair and next thing they're falling through it and shelves are falling down or they're up on that card table dancing or doing whatever they're doing on the card table and the whole thing just collapses. It's because once we apply stress to something, its weakness will show, right? You can kind of test it a little bit, but once you really put the test, that's when it will show. I mean, we, we can see this in our own lives, can't we? It's in those weeks where, where whether it be some kind of major tragedy or sorrow or just difficulty and frustration and stress, that's when all of a sudden, hey, you want to see what my my struggles are right now? Come see me on that week. And you'll see that, hey, I don't have as much patience as I thought I had. What what are your struggles? Where where are your points that will, when stress is applied, that break? Well, that's what sorrow does, it helps us to see that. Help us to, to deal with that. Imagine having a stress fracture and a bone in your leg and every time you take a, a step, oh, it just kind of hurts a little bit. But you, just, you, you learn to live with it. You learn to deal with it and say, you know what? I'm not going to address the break. But all of a sudden, you, you have to do something quickly. You have to move real quick and all of a sudden the whole thing snaps. You hey, you, you got to deal with this. It, it's something that we need to deal with. So I think that's one of the reasons why Solomon is saying that sorrow is better than laughter because so it brings us to a place to not only heal, but first see the issue. To see what the pain is. To see where it's from. Without knowing the issue, we're merely treating the pain. And I think this is what is talking about in verse 4 as he continues on. The wise will allow sorrow to reveal areas of growth. This house of mourning. The wise will be found in a house of mourning because they know, hey, this will be something that will help me see where I'm weak. Where the foolish will mask areas of growth with amusement. They'll be in the house of mirth that they're seeking amusement because they just want to mask the pain. And so we have to ask this question of ourselves. Are we willing to walk through times of sorrow, pain, and stress, frustration for growth? Or are we running to a house of amusement to try to mask the pain? You know, for some of us, this might be in, in, in some kind of substance abuse, whether it's taking drinking too far to place a place of drunkenness and other challenges, or maybe seeing even get involved in, in drugs, or uh, just that whole party scene where you're, you're trying to mask something, trying to drown something out. Maybe for some of us, it is a different house of amusement. You know, we're going to pornography sites, or we're going to, to strip clubs, or just other kinds of sexual immorality. We're trying to drown out the pain with that. For, for others, it can be even a little more innocent. Maybe you're just trying to drown out the pain with a new gadget, with a new purchase, with a new look, with a new, hey, if I can focus on the, in, on the outside, I don't have to worry about what's going on on the inside. I, I can mask that a little more. Maybe it's even just simply trying to find a way to get lost in a story. Maybe you're a movie buff or a TV buff or a book buff or just you like a good story in general. I'm I'm one of those guys, I I just, I love a good story. My favorite stories are the ones that are different than the reality we live in, but have created a world in which that's possible. So you have to kind of, Allow yourself to think outside the box a little bit. But once you get there, then you're in this new world. My perfect example is the Matrix. If you're familiar with the Matrix, the whole premise, I'm going to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it. But if you haven't seen it by now, this is like 10, 20 years old. Uh, But the whole premise of the Matrix is that machines have taken over and basically turned humans into batteries. And they, they use our electrical energies, something like that that happens in our body. And so this world that we live in isn't truly the world we live in. It's in our head. It's a computer program running through our brains. And so if you've seen the movie, you can see that they can do all kinds of crazy things. They can jump real far and defy gravity, eventually even fly. And in the world of the Matrix, that's possible because they're not in the world. They're in a computer program where, where they can bend and, and break laws a little more at will. And I, I remember watching those movies and after I, I'm done with the movie, and I kind of come back to life. i almost have to take a moment to just reset. You ever done that? get caught up in a good story and you finally get to that last chapter that last scene the ending credits and you you turn it off and what's going on oh that's right you know i got all this to take care of all these responsibilities or you know good or bad you have to kind of reorientate yourself back into life because we're looking for a way to mask the pain so the question is is what is the amusement that we're pursuing in our life and and then the follow-up to that is are we using that to mask pain Again, Solomon's not saying that all amusement is bad, but if we're using it to mask pain, then we shouldn't be afraid to go to the house of mourning, to a place of sorrow that will stress us, that will help us to see where we're weak. Kind of sum it all up, Solomon says, Parties were fun, but at a funeral I would grow. Opportunities to be more introspective and surrounded by those who loved him. Loved ones who are willing to speak love and hard truths to us, and this brings us to Solomon's next bit of advice. It's better for a man, verse 5 here, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. A wise rebuke is better than a foolish song. Uh, basically, this example he's, he's playing out here is When in a difficult situation, like being, you know, a pot being in the fire or something like that, the fire's being turned up in your life, uh, a fool will will just crackle like thorns in in the fire. You can imagine you kind of put on something dry, whether thorns or dry leaves, kind of makes that crackle sound. It's almost like like laughter. Whereas the wise would say, hey, you're you're on fire, dude. You see that difference in there? Let's listen to the wise rebuke. my wife and I were a fan of, of cooking shows sometimes, and so he, uh, Gordon Ramsay, if you're familiar with him, has a bunch of different cooking shows. And so we tried one of his other shows um, called uh, Hotel Hell, where he goes to these rundown, you know, about to close the doors hotels, and he tries to help turn them around by saying, Here's all your issues. And I can't tell you how many times in, in the opening moments of that, where he's, he's seen everything, he's seen all the issues, and he's talking to the owner, and, and one of the common lines you always hear is after he'll share something really just, This is terrible, here's your issues, but they'll laugh about it. Or they'll chuckle to themselves. they giggle about it. He says, do you think this is funny? And they don't know how to respond. And I think some of them don't even know why they're laughing about it, why they're giggling about it. But I think this is what Solomon is hitting on here. That that it's easier just to be like the cackling of the thorns when you're in a difficult situation than to deal with the fire. That They're not sure what to do. They're at a loss. And so they just, they don't, they just laugh about it. They're not dealing with the issues that have brought their ruin. Another way we can look at this is um, that actually in those times you would use the branches off of thorn bushes if you wanted a a real quick shot of heat. It wouldn't be a prolonged heat, but it would just be something that would bring a whole bunch of heat real quick. Um, Think of it this way. If you've ever done tree trimming around uh, wherever you live and you kind of let them dry out, but they still have all the leaves on them, and you put all those branches on the fire, I actually did this a couple weeks ago, it'll go up like that. I mean, it will be fast, and I I was doing this, I probably put a few too many on, um, and it just had this, like, intense column of heat, the kind where, like, the trees above are waving, and there's no wind, uh, but they're waving because there's so much heat coming up off this thing, and, um, you know, I had the fire extinguisher and the hose and all that. Um, But then, you know, in a matter of moments, it it was done. It was just this real quick heat, and then done. And that's kind of like when uh, we pour into amusement. We chase after these things to try to solve uh, our pains. It's, it's there for a moment, but it's gone. It doesn't last. The amusement that we turn to for covering our pain is just temporary. It's more likely, honestly, to deepen the cut or prolong the pain we're experiencing. Uh, see, a wise rebuke is better because it leads to growth. But too many of us in our lives are, are hiding the fact that parts of our lives are on fire. We're living as all as well. Uh, but maybe we're dying inside or there's a relational struggle going on or there's a secret sin that we're trying to deal with on our own and we're failing that and we're not willing to share with others that they can walk alongside us. See, Jesus came to the broken to bring healing. We don't need to pretend to have it all together. We don't have it all together here. That's one of the things we hear us talk about often is that we are all broken people in need of a Savior. That's what brings us to Jesus. So let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we have it all together, but acknowledge our brokenness and then move to a place of growth by receiving the wise rebuke of others. When we acknowledge that we're broken, we trust in Jesus. Not only will he redeem us, will he buy us back from sin, but then he'll make us righteous, and then he will regenerate us into the people he intended us for us to be, the life he desires for us to live. And if one of the ways we can grow is through the wise rebuke of others, Well, the question stands, are are we able to hear that? Are are we willing to hear the wise rebuke of others? And what may be difficult, it'll produce fruit in your life. So Solomon continues with with another better than. He says here, uh, the end is better than the beginning. This is in verse uh, 7 through 10. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Uh, verse 7 there, we're not, I'm not going to spend much time on that, but basically this oppression, he's talking about just the weight of life. He's saying, eventually the weight of life will, will be so great that it will tempt you to go to a place where, where you're not going to act in the way you desire to act. Where, where it's going to challenge your name, your character. Life is going to be become heavy and you'll get to this place and so the following verse is kind of unpacked then well how can we be prepared for this temptation if life is going to get heavy like that what do we do it says well know that the end is better than the beginning as I shared before I like to build furniture and work on projects and I can tell you as much as I enjoy the process there is just a, 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 a ecstatic when I finish something probably because it doesn't happen as often as I'm working on things, but uh, more so because it's done. You can put it into use, whatever it is. One, one of the more recent things I did, maybe have seen these online, is, is you make a big giant ruler. You know, Instead of being in inches, it's in feet. You can hang it from your wall, and you get the kids to stand up there, and you can measure the kids and all that. But I wanted to do something like that for a while. It only took six years. Actually, seven. He was almost seven, but it's up there now, and we have our first measurements, and we're looking forward to being able to do the, the next ones as time goes on. It, it uh, There's so much joy. As much as I enjoyed making it, the most fun was seeing it done and being able to embrace it and experience the joy from that. Well, someone's saying that life is like that too. But what's interesting is, is we're stuck in time, right? So if he's saying the end is better than the beginning, we can't all of a sudden jump to the end of our life. So what do we do now? Well, Let's realize what the end goal is. Let's realize where we're trying to get. What is the end goal in life? We can ask questions like that. What is the end goal in marriage? What is the end goal in raising kids? What is the end goal in my work? What is the end goal in in just living? These are all valid questions. I could fill a whole other sermon. But I think what Solomon's saying is when you remember the end goal and you keep that in mind, it will help you with these next things that he unpacks. Verse 8 talks about how patience is better than pridefulness. When we see the end goal, it helps our patience to increase. If you're a parent dealing with a frustrating child on a day where they're just uh, acting up left and right, if that day is all that we can see, it's hard to be patient. But if we can keep the end goal in mind to see, hey, you know what? Ultimately, my goal, the end job, is to see that my kids know about Jesus and, and, and know about their creator God okay sure there's blueberries all over the carpet today but that doesn't mean we can't still move to the end goal and help you become uh, more patient in that so as we see the end goal our patience increases as we see the end goal our anger can decrease we see that in verse 9 do not be quick to become angry because again as we see where we're going i think it helps us to temper those frustrations and angers and the same applies in our own development. As you think about who has God called us to be? What is God doing in your life? If you've had a very difficult day we just feel like, man, I just blew it. I failed at this, or I just dropped the ball here, or here's where I messed up. Remember the end goal. That It's a journey we walk together that will help our patience to increase and our anger to decrease. And then gets a, a beautiful statement of wisdom here in verse 10. Don't say, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. When you are in a place of sorrow and frustration and pain, don't reminisce. That's what he's saying. Because when we reminisce in those times, it doesn't come from a place of wisdom. It comes from a place of wanting to escape the pain. And we don't do ourselves any justice. Because when we look back to the days of old, what are we looking at? We're looking at the joy. We're looking at the good times. We're looking at the, the, the awesome experiences we've already had. So here we are sitting in some of the difficulties of life saying, gee, wasn't that fun? And we're not reminding ourselves of all the challenges that we had in that moment. We're not acknowledging all the sin that was in our life that was yet to be uncovered to others at that point in our life. It's not a, a fair picture like the, the analogy I've used before about the grass is always greener on the other side. It, it always looks that way until you get there and you look back where you came from, you see, oh, the grass is still greener over there where I just came from. It, the same is true of time. We can look back in our days and say, oh, wasn't it better when I was this way? If you're having difficulty in marriage, you say, wasn't it better when I was single? If you're having difficulty in singleness, you're looking forward, wouldn't it be better if I was married? No matter where we are, we have just as many problems to deal with. So Solomon's saying, don't do that to yourself. Because we're not fair to ourselves. We're not honest with ourselves about the the truth of of those days. Uh, If I could kind of move this from an individual stance to a a communal stance. As a church, we need to do the same thing. We can't get stuck in the good old days. We can't get stuck in saying, hey, remember when we were like this? I I liked it like that. Why why did we change? Why, why uh, Why did we make space for more people? You know? Why did we put a parking lot in? Now more people want to come. Why why, why did we get a worship director and really see our our worship grow and improve in all kinds of different aspects? You know what? Now people are liking it more and they want to stay longer. And and you know what? I liked it like this. We we do that all the time. Whatever. And those are just a few examples. But I think we're really at a significant point as a church with this parking lot going in, with some of the, the, the ministries and where they're at and the growth that's happening. Where we're gonna see change. Why? Because growing things change. And some of it will be exciting and awesome, and some of it you're not gonna like. There'll be a Sunday you come in, and you know what? Someone's sitting in your spot. You're gonna come in and you know what's gonna happen when the parking lot's in. You're gonna find your spot, the place you like to put your car because it's you know the one spot that has shade. Things are gonna change. And we might get upset about it. But we can't look back and say, you know what? Oh, I remember when this was like that, because that was better. Solomon's saying that doesn't come from a place of wisdom. What we need to do as a church is remember the end goal. And what is the end goal? Well, we see from Jesus, says, to love God and to love others. We see from Jesus a call to go and make disciples. One of the ways that we sum all that up here at Meadowland is we say our mission is to see lives changed by Jesus and disciples of Jesus made. That's why we strive and fight to have an outward perspective, to always be looking at those outside of the church who need to hear about the gospel of Jesus. That's why every time we invite people to come in, we want to hear. We want, we want to make sure they hear the gospel of Jesus, the good news that he has died for their sin and they can live in eternity. Their eternity can be secure in Jesus. And we want to follow Solomon's wisdom, not get stuck in looking back at the, the good old days, but remember, hey, the best is yet to come. And growing things change. And so, sure, let's deal with those uh, things that change that you may not like, but let's keep the end goal in mind so that our patience increase and our anger decrease as we remember what truly matters, seeing lives change and disciples made. And close that real quick here. Uh, Verse 11 says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Uh, Again, not going to unpack this one too much. Basically, Solomon's saying, protect your wisdom like you would your money, like you would your treasure. For why? Because it produces the life you long to live. As we follow wisdom, it'll move us in the direction towards the end goal of being more like Jesus, of being... uh, a stronger disciple of his, looking more like him. In Verse 13 Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. What's he talking about here? That's our last thought. As Solomon's been walking through these better than statements, a lot of what he's been bringing up is dealing with times of sorrow, right? He had a whole bunch of different uh, better than statements that acknowledge that, hey, there's going to be times in life that are difficult, that that are full of sorrow and frustration and hurt and stress. Now here he's got these closing statements that who who can straighten what God has made crooked? If God has set something this way, who can change it? Basically, we, we don't have control over God. We can't change the things that God has already set. We don't even know what the future will bring. And then he says, the days of prosperity... Take joy in them. The days of adversity, remember that those days are from God as well. This is a very difficult truth that Solomon is unpacking here. Now we need to be clear here. Solomon is not saying all adversity is from God. That's not what he's saying. There are sorrows, there are challenges, there are difficulties that we will go through in this life because of someone else's sin. Because we live in a broken world. Yes, God is sovereign and allows us to go through that, but there are things that we go through in our life that are not from God. He allows them. He walks with us in them, but they're a result of someone else's sin. Let's not lose sight of that. But sometimes we take that too far. We're driving down the expressway. We get a flat tire. Satan's trying to stop me. Now, that may be true in that moment, but sometimes it's every little thing. You know, maybe you oversleep and you're trying to get dressed real quick and, and you had a little hole starting to get formed in your pants and you, you put your leg in real quick and, of course, your toe catches that hole and you end up tearing a big hole in your pants and then you got to change your pants and then you're even later and it, all of a sudden this whole you know, list of things unfold. and You say, oh, Satan must be trying to stop me. It must have been something great that was going to happen today but Satan got in the way. Again, in those moments that, that might be true but I think we take that too far sometimes. Because what Solomon is saying is there are some days where you will experience adversity. There are some days that will be full of sorrow that are from God. Just let that sink in for a minute. That's both terrifying and extremely comforting for me. I don't know if it is for you. The initial shock is man, so, so there's some things, that, you know, there's, some, there's some crap that God's going to let me go through, and that, that's the best word I can use for it and the answer is yes but then i also remember hang on who who can change what god has set in motion this is the god of the universe we're talking about this is the god who adopts us as sons and daughters this is the god who sent his son to die for us so that we can be made anew and so if there's a work he wants to do in us that takes sorrow and difficulty to bring it out so we can deal with it and grow through it then okay i'll trust him As an example, one of the best things I can think of is with my own kids. And there's moments where the path they're walking might lead to some pain. And I've made a a judgment call as a loving parent to say, in this moment, I I can control, again, I'm not God, I can't control everything, but I, I can control these parameters to see I've created a safe place where the possibility of failure, the possibility of pain is there. And I said, because I love my kid, because I want them to grow through the lessons they'll learn in that, I'm going to be there with them, I'm going to love them, I'm going to support them, I'm going to provide for them what they need to learn that lesson, but I'm going to allow that lesson to happen. And that's what Solomon's talking about when he says that a funeral is better than a party, that sorrow is better than laughter. He's saying there's t- something to be learned in that. And so what's his conclusion and all that? Well, let's remember... Again, he says, in the days of prosperity, be joyful in that. Even the days of adversity, there's still a place we can eat, drink, and enjoy what God has provided, even though some of that's not always fun. And so what can we do in this? We can open ourselves up to God. When when we go through difficult times, we cannot be so quick to say, you know what, this is of of Satan. And say, you know what, maybe there's something that God's trying to do. And ask that question. And it may be no. You may get the answer of, no, I, I really don't think. You know, I've asked other people in my life too, and I've opened all this up, and I, I don't think this is something that God's trying to teach me right now. Will you walk with me as I just deal with this difficulty? And other times, you know what? Man, I didn't even see this coming. I had a major blind spot. Can you walk with me as I learn through this? Let's do that together as a family. For when we trust in Jesus. We're adopted as sons and daughters. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for Solomon's wise words. And I know um, there's aspects of them, Father, that are difficult to digest, that are difficult to, to hear and understand fully. So I pray you're just going to work on our hearts and our minds, Father, uh, that we could see uh, what Solomon's talking about here. Father, for those of us who are in a midst of joy right now, a mist of uh, uh, prosperity, I pray that we'd be able to experience the joy of that, Father, um, and to not lose sight of that, and to give you glory and to give you thanks for that, Father God. Let it not just be a a temporary joy, but one that is rooted in you. Father, if we're going through adversity right now, help us to see where it's from. Father, if this is a result of someone else's sin or just living in a broken world, Father, help us to to struggle through it in a way that, that brings you glory and brings about our good, Father, brings it to an end, that we can walk with you in your strength, in your power, Father, if, if we're going through a time of adversity right now, and it's from you, again, help us to see that and to be okay with that, to see that there's, there's things you want to bring about in us. There's pruning to be done, there's impurities to be burnt out. There's a work of regeneration that you've begun when we trusted in you, Jesus, that you promised to bring to a place of completion. So we stand before you as your church, as your bride, and say, Do your work. We look forward to the end, which is the beginning of eternity with you, Father. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are in control over all things. We trust in you.